Welcome to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com, the show that features conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Greetings and salutations. I'm here for another week of Don't Box Me In. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about how drug addiction affects the family of those with addiction. My guests today are the parents of Jonathan Dacey, who passed away in 2010 after many years of struggling with his habit. As a parent myself, I can only imagine the pain that comes from years of watching your child stumble, fall, get back up again, only to stumble again. Frustration, fear, and isolation are all feelings that come to mind. The Daisies explain it best what it's like to deal with a loved one struggling with addiction in the opening of their book about Jonathan's life, titled Jonathan, Behind Blue Eyes. The following three paragraphs say so much. Maybe you know a loved one or a family member who is experiencing addiction issues. There may be a scenario described that will help you decide how to pursue help for your loved one. Certainly our family was confronted with many situations regarding Jonathan, particularly during his last eight months. Decisions we made or didn't make affected how this period of time played out. Whether it is to follow our experiences or do the complete opposite, it doesn't matter. If it ultimately brings more peace and resolution to your situation, then his gift has been received. After reading this book, you might find something in your heart that gives you a better understanding of the nature of the disease. You may find that you show a little more compassion, patience, and understanding to a person struggling with addiction, less quickly to judge, and more apt to reach out and support that person. This is by no means a how-to book. The end result is that Jonathan passed away, and obviously nobody wanted that. It will reveal his family's feelings, experiences, fears, anger, frustrations. Yet more importantly, the faith, hope, and love that we all shared. If you recognize something in Jonathan's story that will help, directly or indirectly, and bring inner peace into your life, then he will accomplish what he wanted to do with his life. Here today on Don't Box Me In, I welcome Terry and Mike Dacey to the show. Hello, you guys. Hi, Hello, Lana. Lana. Thank you. <laughs> Good to have you here. Good to have you here. Um, so, Terry and Mike, uh, help us understand a little bit more about Jonathan as a child. Uh, what do you remember most about him? Terry, go you ahead, Mike. Go ahead or, okay. Oh, okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, he was a very, very rambunctious, outgoing, fun-loving, mischievous child, and uh, he has. He always had a sense of adventure all the time. He loved to do almost from as long ago as I can remember, as long as as long as long he had military things to play with, G.I. Joes and any of that type of thing. That was his favorite thing. He always, he always loved uh, anything to do with playing Army. <laughs> Good deal. Yeah, and you guys, you guys had, um, is he the only child or you guys have more kids? We have a total of, uh, we had, uh, including Jonathan, a total of three. He has an older brother, Michael, um, who lives with his wife, Cherie, in Atlanta. And uh, we have a daughter, Kristen, who is um, living in Chicago with her husband, Matt. Okay. All right. And, Mike, do you have anything you wanted to say about what you remember he was like yeah, as a one, child? One of the things, uh, when he was about 10, uh, Terry talked about this, was uh, just his interest in the military and and spying, but one of the things that I found after he passed away and I was going through his things was just he documented everything. I mean, here's a 10 or a 12-year-old kid with files on me and uh, some of the neighbors and just notes on um, what he needed to do to help the kids that he was helping. Uh, Mm. It's really, he was meticulous with file keeping and notes and uh, and, uh, and his whole life, he was uh, very much a leader yeah. uh, with all of his friends. He was always the leader of the pack. Okay. Wow. Like, oh, so. Say, oh, I'm sorry, Lana. 
No, no, you're fine. You're fine. So finish what you were going to say. Yeah, he didn't apply this this uh, the school. He did it with the things that he enjoyed. Okay. Okay. So you mentioned both of you mentioned that he had an early uh, interest in military. Is that a pathway that he expressed he wanted to do later in life? Yes, it he is. Always he always wanted uh, to be in the military, and um, unfortunately, um, he was told. Um, I believe he was 19 uh, at the time that he was not qualified to be in there um, due to uh, an ear problem that he had. He had to have surgery on one of his ears, and um, I believe they've now changed that that rule. Um, but at the time, he was told that he was no longer eligible, and it literally broke his heart because he had spent his entire life spending every penny of his allowance and hmm. everything uh, on Army uh, stuff at the Army-Navy store and camouflage stuff. And just, um, you know, he had a huge library of books on um, um, military tactics and... Um, survival uh, methods and all types of things like that and he was very fascinated with it actually his dream was was really big to do something like Navy SEALs or something that was uh, special forces wow wow and you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the the ear thing that kept him from the military uh, which I want to back up a little bit how young was he when he started to uh, experience or suffer from headaches he was he very was- young Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I think he was probably uh, 11 or 12 when they really started getting bad. And if I recall, they they refer to them as uh, teenage migraine headaches or Mm -hmm. what was that? Adolescent migraine. Adolescent, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they would get absolutely severe. There were times I'd just have to hold them as he, Mm -hmm. you know, vomiting and just shaking. That's a lot for an 11-year-old to be going through. So the doctors at that time, did they start medicating, uh, giving him medication then at that time? Yes, they did. Uh, he was in, we tried different medications uh, over the years, and uh, it would seem that one might help for a little while, and then migraines would continue to, to occur, and we'd have to switch to another one. And, uh, so we spent a lot of time or a lot of time with the doctors throughout those years. Okay. And um, I think I read that it was finally probably around the time that he was 18 that we we found one that kind of worked for him? That's correct. It's, uh, I, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know if it was the time right after his ear surgery, surgery when he was introduced to the Oxycontin or if it may have been before then, but in going through as, as we put to the book together, the timing kind of popped out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you don't recall if it was actually the, the surgery or the medication that made him feel better? No, it was definitely the medication. The surgery didn't really help him all that much. And, um, and at the time, um, I do know this much, at the time that he was whatever... If it was, we did a little research to find out when OxyContin was first introduced to the public. That would be when they when they when they did it. He, it was the new miracle drug, you know, and nobody knew about its addictive properties. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, it was originally created to be a, a breakthrough pain medication for end-stage cancer patients that morphine and the typical medications that they use for end-stage cancer pain were not working anymore. And that was what its intention was when it was developed. And, um, I mean, we know that now. None of us knew that at the time. And um, and it was, it's now, as you, as you know, it's, it's become a, you know, a, an instant cure for everything and doctors are still prescribing it constantly and it is extremely extremely addictive and none of us knew any of that we were just so happy that after years and years and years of trying you know we had finally found a medication that actually helped his migraines because they like Mike said they would incapacitate him severely Mm -hmm. for three and four days at a time where all he could do is lay in a dark room with no noise and no light and 
couldn't work, couldn't go to school, couldn't do anything, you know, or he'd just be so sick. So it was a huge, big deal for him and for all of us uh, for him to get relief finally. But, you know, unknowing at the time um, the, the, the horrible addiction problems that it can cause. Yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, there's so many uh, medications that are on the market today that, you know, years later, they're like, oh, by the way, and, you know, by that time, it's way too late. Right. Um, so so we have the, the oxycodone first and then the surgery. I'm curious if he's getting medication for the headaches, why, why do we do the surgery? How did that come about? He'd always had troubles with his ears. Uh, right. Yeah, and uh, the surgery was really nothing to do with the headaches. It was it okay. was because of his ear problem that he had. He was having trouble hearing and getting a lot of ear infections and that kind of thing. Okay, okay. So he gets the um, surgery on his ears, and now he's told that he can't join the military. And if I got the timing right, he must be about nineteen at this time. Um, how does this affect him? I mean, what he has to change his whole life goals now at this point. Uh, what happens, or what what do you observe him at this time doing? What does no, he I remember, go? yeah, I remember when we got the news. We walked out of the surgeon's office, and uh, he just broke down in tears. And I held him in the parking lot uh, as he just said to me, "My dad, dad, my dreams are ruined. My dreams are ruined. This is all I've ever wanted to do." So um, that you know, initially, it, it, it he had to deal with that. And at the same time, he'd had some problems in high school where he dropped out once or twice before that. He had gone back, and up until this time, he was he was a little bit older than all the students now, and he was applying himself. Uh, but after he got this news, he just kind of gave up and uh, dropped back out of school and uh, continued to pursue a career in the restaurant industry. Okay, all right. So he's 19, he's dropped out of high school, and he's working in a restaurant um, doing what, if I may ask? He uh, he was a very good uh, fast food cook. Uh, okay. He worked, you know, Italian restaurants, uh, hamburger places, uh, a little bit of everything. As a matter of fact, uh, very soon after he got out of high school, he started Mex- uh, managing a Mexican restaurant. Okay, okay, so leadership skills come into play again, and I'm assuming he's still living at home with one, and and let me, I guess, maybe say to the audience, uh, you two are not together at this time, right? That's correct. That's correct. Okay, okay. We're very, very close friends, but we've been divorced since 1988. (laughs) Okay, okay, and it's always nice to see uh, couples that can still get along after divorce. So, Mike, I'm assuming from your conversation tone, uh, Jonathan's living at home with you. Correct, and it was about this okay. time he he moved out uh, to live on his own. That's that's right. Uh, after he had this job, he was making pretty good money, mm-hmm. and uh, he moved out uh, around this time with his friend Derek, and uh, they uh, continued to live the party life. They they enjoyed themselves. Okay, so. He was still, were you aware while he's with you that he was um, still kind of going overboard with the, the pills and stuff, or were you still kind of not knowledgeable of that at this point? No, I wasn't really knowledgeable. Um, I know that during this time I would take him to the different doctors, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, and get his medicine filled, and I really, I didn't connect with whether or not he was abusing it at that time or not. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Um, but it's right important to re- recognize the fact that during all of that, and I think it was really enhanced when he realized that he could no longer go into the military, um, there were, had been some other changes that, that took place in Jonathan's life, and he had a lot of anxiety and depression problems, um, and I believe that he started self-medicating around that time we didn't realize it at the time for what it was but he you know he had um he had a lot of shattered dreams going on i mean uh, mike didn't mention this before um, but in regard to that military um goal and dream that he had um he and some of his best friends uh had joined rotc 
in their school, and they had um, they were really really into it. Uh, we, I mean, matter of fact, there's a picture I believe in the book. Um, if mm-hmm. we use that one, I can't remember now of him in his ROTC uniform. He was so proud of it, and mm-hmm. um, you know he had his hair. All of he and his friends had their hair all shaved, real short, like the military. Um, mm-hmm. Really trying to to really you know be very involved in it, and um, and then shortly thereafter, um, when Mike um, relocated. And Jonathan kind of moved away from that area where all those friends were. He had a lot of problems adjusting to the new high school and people there. It was a more rural area than where he was used to um, living previously. And he had a lot of problems with people not understanding him or, or misjudging him. And um, even even where he was called, you know, skinhead and all kinds mm. of and things that were absolutely not him. He was the most political person and the most you know, non-racist person. Uh, he All he did was love everyone. His whole life was all about love. And um, and it was very, very upsetting to see him struggling all the time trying to find a direction for himself because his goals had been set for his whole life to do what he believed was what he was meant to do. Wow, wow. Well, this time, at this time, we're going to take a quick break, but when I come back, I want to talk uh, some more about Jonathan's struggles and his transition at this particular time in his life. So y'all stay tuned. We'll be right back. Let's return to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com with your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In. I'm speaking with Terry and Mike Dacey uh, this morning or afternoon for them. Uh, before we left the break, we were talking about uh, Jonathan and uh, when he found out he couldn't go into the military. And, Mike, you mentioned that it was at this particular time that he moved out and, and moved in with a friend. Uh, so I'm going to assume it was it at this particular time in his life that you noticed that he started to have a problem with the pills? I knew he was living kind of a party life, uh, but mm-hmm. I didn't know it was specifically the pills. Um, he he always seemed to be having a good time with life, and uh, yeah, he seemed happy. So mm-hmm. I didn't really you know, put anything together there. Okay. So when did it become apparent that he might be struggling with addiction? Uh, a little bit later. Um, probably when he was 20, uh-huh. I think at some point, um, he, he ended up in an emergency room. This was the first time, his first admission to, uh, a rehab facility. And uh-huh. he'd had, uh, been carving himself with a knife and, uh, had, was crying. He was just severely depressed. I don't know if it was about breaking up over with a girl or, or what the uh, situation was. Um, but that was the first time. And I ended up, I, I, I got a call from the hospital. I went up, ended up driving over there, and they told me he was going to be admitted for um, addiction issues plus depression and anxiety. So um, this is his first experience with rehab at this particular time. He's 20 years old. After rehab, um does he come home to live with you again, or does he stay on his own? Um, he came home with me for a little while, and he ended up going back out again. And as I recall, it was maybe eight or ten months later, uh, the same type of situation occurred. Um, this time, I took him to the emergency room. Uh, I don't remember why. It might have been for migraines, uh, something physical. And I guess they detected something in his blood uh, because they ended up putting him in a secure area and we ended up finding out that he was going to go back to the uh, rehab facility that he'd been in what, 10 months prior, whatever that was. Okay, all right. And um, these times when, these beginning times when he was in rehab, how long were they keeping him there? About 10 days each time. Just about 10 days. Okay. And was he managing to hold down a job at this time or, or no? Um, 
specifically, I don't remember. I know sometimes he was able to, and there were other times he didn't. Okay. He did, okay. you know, there was there was some job hopping throughout okay. his career. Okay. And um, reflecting back, um, now that we've had some time, uh, the in and out of rehab, what do you notice, what do you remember the most in his behavior, the difference, like when he was binging on the drugs and when he was sober? What do you remember the difference in Jonathan? Probably the clarity um, with, you know, with uh, how we came across, how we communicated. Um, he, there was a sneaky side to him that it would seem to peak just before he go into rehab. He got out, to he, a point where it felt like he wasn't telling us the truth a lot of the time, and that was exactly what I was about to say, Mike. It, it was kind of a, a feeling, that, and it's very difficult um, on the family because you want with all your heart to believe that your child is telling you the truth because he was always such an honest person and a caring and loving person, and and yet there's this part of you that, that knows that he's not and, you know, that there's more more going on and he you know and, and and this is not at all uncommon it's part of addiction disease um and we've we've learned more and more through the years that um you know when their body is screaming for a drug um in order to feel better um people don't seem to understand and i and honestly i don't know that we did either um mm-hmm. prior to going to this experience through this experience that there's such a huge misconception out there that people automatically jump to the conclusion that because somebody um, has an addiction to drugs that they're either a loser or, you know, an irresponsible person or, you know, that they they are doing it for the purpose of getting high. And then, mm-hmm. and the fact of the matter is when somebody is actually addicted, um, whether it be alcohol or drugs, um, they literally feel like they're... Jonathan used to describe it to us when he would go into a withdrawal situation and didn't have the medication in his system. He literally felt like he was dying. Um, mm-hmm. It was the withdrawal is it's extremely, extremely painful, and um, they literally have to take the medication to feel normal. It wasn't it wasn't for a high anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Even people who started out as on a recreational basis for their usage, it still all comes down to the addiction is is, is 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 physical and mental both, you know, and you're and you just simply cannot fix it by yourself because it really is a disease. And I think that was the a lot of the guilt that Jonathan carried around throughout his his entire last several years of his life um, was very overwhelming to him because, you know, he admitted that he had stolen and lied directly looking straight into our eyes and, and lied and stole from all of us and stole from other people and borrowed money that he couldn't pay back. And all of that was to was for the purpose of trying to feel normal. And he felt terribly guilty about it. And I think that led to more and more depression and more and more anxiety and feelings of failure. Um, he wanted to be a good father to his little boy because um, he loved him with all his heart. And he he always felt like he was failing in every area. And that was um, very difficult for all of us to watch and not be able to really do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of times that's hard for people to deal with that it's actually a sickness, you know, and, and that person that's going through addiction and the things that they're doing are not the person that we love. That's the sickness that is making them do those things that are causing so much hurt, not only to themselves, uh, but the family. And, you know, that's that's hard probably to, to cope with when you're going through it, that this is the sickness that's making my, my son or my my loved one, you know, act this way. Um, I want to ask uh, now for some self-reflection, uh, looking back, because uh, you hear when people are dealing with a loved one that's uh, suffering drug, drug, drug addiction, um, you got two things going on. Either they are the enabler or they're the tough love. Do you think either of you had these traits while he was going through this, or how do you think you dealt with Jonathan? I think that 
absolutely, Mike will agree that we were a complete polar end of the spectrum on our ways of dealing with this. Um, and I, and by no means do I place any blame uh, on either side because it is the most difficult thing that I could ever imagine um, with the conflicting emotions and everything. But I, having a medical background and being knowledgeable about addiction disease, to a much better degree probably on that level than Mike mm-hmm. did. I was all about the tough love approach because I, I really believed that Jonathan could not do this on his own. Um, Mike can speak for himself on that, but but we've talked about it lots and lots of times. He, on the other hand, did not necessarily agree with the tough love approach. Um, and I experienced myself because I did bring Jonathan here to we you know when we had tried so many different ways and nothing was working and we tried different rehabs and those weren't working and um so i had some friends of mine that were into the um, natural healing and holistic uh what you know more eastern medicine type of approaches um and so i brought jonathan here and he lived with me for several years um and we tried everything from acupuncture to cranial sacral therapy to uh massage therapy, you know, all kinds of different things, and I put him into a different rehab place here as well, but um, none of that really helped either because I just believe he was just so so far gone uh, at that point that even though he would go and he really, really wanted to get well, he would get detoxed, um, and unfortunately because, you know, he didn't have insurance coverage anymore on either his dad or my policy because of his age, um, it was very difficult to get him into a, a program that was the right type of program. And um, so he was kind of stuck in, in going to state-run programs that usually the maximum amount of time they'll keep you in is about 28 days. And then you really don't leave with any tools, you know, to to keep yourself sober after you leave. And, and you know, the first day that a a stressful thing happens and you think it's it's like people trying to stop smoking cigarettes you know they think well I'll just have just one um and 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 then the next thing you know you just went out and bought a carton and and I think that that's what continuously kept happening to Jonathan and he would be so he would even be further depressed because he failed again and it was just a a constant cycle like that but back to your original question I, I think Mike will agree that you know our whole family was very conflicted on the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do because, again, you're dealing with a kid that's over the age of 21, and you can't force anything, you know. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> so that's yeah, really yeah, difficult. That's, yeah, especially I think towards the end, the last uh, nine months here of Jonathan's life is when I, mean, I think both Terry, you and I had, we've we've matured and you know, you had your stance, I had my stance, and certainly Michael had his stance. And this is all pointed out throughout the book, uh, just the conflict that existed uh, between us. Um, but I, I want to go back and to your question, were we the enabler or were we the tough love? I think throughout the years, uh, we went, we were everything. I mean, there mm-hmm. were days when I was the tough love. There were days I'm sure I was the enabler. There were days I was everything in between. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're just looking for something that'll work. And some days your patience isn't quite what it is the next day. So, um, but, yeah, certainly what Terry says, uh, I think too, you touched on it, Terry, when uh, Jonathan went to Ariadne and Francis, the uh, spiritual and holistic rehab. And that's, that was probably the best experience of Jonathan's life, what, you know, what he learned there. Okay. Well, right now I got to take a quick break, but you guys hold on. I want to talk some more right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Hello, hello, welcome back. You are with me, Terry, and Mike Dacey. And uh, before the break, we were talking about the cycle of uh, 
tough love and enabler of the back and forth that you guys were kind of going through. Now, uh, you mentioned, um, I think you mentioned one of his brothers when we were talking about that. I want to know, how did his, how were his brothers and sisters taking all of this? Uh, how was it affecting them? Terry, are you there? I'm here. Oh, do you want me to handle this one, or do you want to take it? Go ahead. Okay, well, Michael, um, and I'm, I'm referring now to, I guess, the last nine or ten months. He was he was a tough love approach, yet there were times he would go out to Jonathan and just be the loving brother and do what he could, and he, he really tried his best um, to help Jonathan, and... Um, but there was a lot of frustration that went along with it when Jonathan would seem to ignore him or not pay attention to him or avoid him for days at a time, weeks at a time. So there was a lot of frustration there, and like there was with all of us. Um, Kristen, her being in Chicago, um, she just kind of wanted her brother to get better. Um, she would send supporting emails to Jonathan. She called Jonathan, support him. Uh, she would support Terry. She would support me. She would she would just try and love. I guess our way through this. Okay. Do you agree with that, Terry? Or you explain it a little better? Yes, I, I think it was just for everyone. They had their own set of emotions going on. Everyone ultimately just wanted Jonathan to get well however way was possible and to try whatever we could. But again, like you just said, Mike, it's Jonathan became very distant. He didn't want to hear. He didn't want to be told what to do, and he didn't want to hear it. And he really believed, he wanted to believe that he could fix this on his own. And um, so he then went really crazy with um, reading Everything he could get his hands on, self-help books of all types. Mm-hmm. He had a huge library of, of, um, and he loved Wayne Dyer. Loved Wayne Dyer. He listened to his CDs constantly and read all of his books and watched all of his telecasts and, um, you know, really tried. He tried every kind of, every kind of possible way there was, whether they be regular approaches or, or out there approaches, you know, just to try and find anything that would help, anything that would help him. Because I think that Jonathan felt defeated and didn't know where where to turn anymore. You know, he didn't, he didn't, he just didn't feel like he fit in, like he was in, in the wrong, in the wrong space or something and he had made that kind of comment to Mike um, and to me a few times Mike can elaborate on that there were some times that were just earth shattering some of the profound things that came out of his mouth he was a very very excellent writer and like Mike said previously he he kept journals throughout most of his life which we did not find until after he passed away obviously since they were private Um, Mm -hmm. but a lot of those all of those actually are included in the book Um, and he did a lot of other writing. You know, he was very poetic, and he was just—he had one of those kind of minds, like you hear people talk about musicians and artists mm-hmm. and people. Well, he was an outstanding artist and a musician as well, and um, and an avid writer. And he would—he was very, very, very good at putting his thoughts down and talking about life and and what was important in life and that type of thing. There's some very profound writings of his that we found. Wow. Very creative mind and a very tr- troubled mind. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to move into the very last rehab that Jonathan uh, experienced. And if I read correctly, uh, there was an incident where he got involved with the law um, and you guys were struggling to find a facility for him. Uh, could you go into that story for me? I'll, I'll start it out, Terry, uh, and turn the rest of it over to you if you don't mind. But uh, we had had some very intense moments in December uh, at the house, and it was time to throw him out. So I took him to one of these week-long facilities, and you know, I paid the rent. I, I arranged to get his medications for him, and I would 
stop by each morning and give them to him. And he somehow got his hands on other things because he went out one night and he was caught shoplifting. So he was in jail for four or five days, and at this time, Terry's going frantic, and we all are just looking for places to send him. Terry, I'll turn it over to you. It's just, okay. Well, we we as Mike said, we were frantic at that point. We had seen some behaviors uh, change. We we now realized that Jonathan was was using other things um, besides. Um, I mean, because uh, we didn't mention before that throughout that it was such a long journey. But in the in the process of getting to the point where you're referring to now, um, he had he had been going to a methadone clinic, which was supposed to be, um, you know, able to not give uh, it, it triggers a part of the brain that takes away the the feeling of being high completely. So that it's supposed to take away any kind of cravings or anything, and, and that is a medication that um, is used to uh, combat heroin addiction. And so he was—he actually had stayed kind of stable for a while, um, and was holding down a job and all of that for—I don't know how long it was, Mike, but maybe a, a, a whole year or more. Um, it was after 2007, council. Yeah, yeah and and then after that. Um, he um, he had gotten to a point where the methadone clinic said that he they they could not give him any any higher dosage you know because like with all addictions your your body gets used to a certain amount and then you need more and then you need more and then the next thing you knew he was taking what they said was the highest amount of any patient that they had ever had and he was still getting uh, breakthrough withdrawal symptoms and they simply just could not give him any higher dosage and in fact told him he needed to start getting weaned off of it altogether and if they would even reduce it as much as even 20 or 25 milligrams um, he would start going into withdrawal and then the panic would set in and the anxiety and everything and he started taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications at that point which were prescribed Um, and um, and then, you know, he didn't really have the experience so much with those type of medications as he did. You know, he, he was kind of like a walking pharmacology mm-hmm. book when it came to anything that were pain medications. You know, he, he knew exactly how much you could take and exactly how much, you know, he needed to take care of his symptoms or what have you. But then it became a problem where it turned around the other way and he was becoming... Um, very depressed and starting to, to have suicidal thoughts and feelings that were really, really scary and, um, you know, started falling asleep at the wheel and had a few car accidents and within a two-week period of time. And we knew that things were really, really going downhill. He would go into these rages and and he, was, he would go from, from that to feeling so depressed that he didn't didn't feel like he could do anything anymore. He couldn't function. And we were very, very concerned that things were really going downhill for him. And because of an incident that took place, you know, we even tried really tough love and tried to call the police to come over and and hope that, you know, they they would put him somewhere. They would force him into a rehab, you know. And we, Mm -hmm. we tried all those kind of things. And the police came over, and he just had the ability to just, snap right into place from being in a rage five minutes before they got there to being so polite and shaking their hand and saying, thank you so much for coming, but, um, you know, I'm fine. I just had an argument with my girlfriend. That's all, you know, and, and they just could not find a legal reason to take him anywhere. And that's the only hope that we felt we had left was to have him admitted to a rehab place, you know, through the police taking him somewhere. And then you find out how difficult it is even to do that. You hear people talk about it's called different things in different states, but here in Florida it's called the Baker Act, where, you know, a a policeman or someone that's in law enforcement can can take somebody and and forcibly have them admitted with a family's, you know, consent or Mm -hmm. signature for 
72 hours. Um, but, of course, they can leave after that. Mm-hmm. But the hope is that once they're there, you know, they might be able to at least have a chance to evaluate them and try to, you know, pull whatever strings they can to keep them there and put them into a, an inpatient program. Um, I believe that somebody with Jonathan's situation needed needed a dual diagnostic facility where they were being treated for the underlying cause of the mm. of the depression and all of that, as well as the addiction itself. And um, and we were just never able to get that kind of help. You know, no matter where he went, they never seemed to they never seemed to have those two things in the same facility. Gotcha. Um, so it was. Uh, so going back to that, you know, period of time that Mike's referring to, um, that December, that last Christmas time right before um, Jonathan passed away in May, um, it was just a, a very horrible situation at that time where, um, you know, Mike Mike had told him, you know, as he said, to, that he needed to go live elsewhere. It was just causing too many problems there in the house, and he was very unstable. And um, and that's when he walked out of that little motel that he was staying in and walked into a, a store and, and stole something. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we purposely left him there, hoping that when he did go in front of a judge, that they would automatically commit him to a rehab facility for as an inpatient. And um, the problem with that was that our guilt played on us so hard because he was crying and depressed and begging and begging everyone to get him out of there. And he would go anywhere we wanted, but just get him out of this jail. And, you know, and I tried calling over there to the director and, and they assured me that if it was their kid, they'd get him out because it's just a misdemeanor, you know, and. Mm-hmm. They were backlogged six or eight months, and he's not going to probably see a judge for a long, long time, and that if it was any kid of his, he wouldn't be leaving him in there, and he made us feel so guilty to keep him in jail, and we were only keeping him there because we were desperate. <laughs> Tara, Tara, I think we're mixing up Hiram and Rome. In Hiram, he saw the judge after four or five days, and that's when I made the deal with uh, the court or with the court to keep him in the system and that's when you found Narcanon and I think Lana that's where you you wanted us to start talking about that is that correct and yeah but we're gonna we're gonna take our, our last break of the day and when we come back we're gonna talk about uh, your experience your family's experience with Narcanon stay tuned we'll be right back You're listening to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. I am with Terry and uh, Mike Dacey today. And uh, Terry and Mike, in this last uh, nine minutes or so that we have, I want to talk about your family's experience with uh, Narcanon because here it is. Um, as parents, you're frustrated. You're trying to get Jonathan into some facility uh, that will service him and, and help him with his addiction and uh, explain to me what was the what was the sales pitch that Narcanon sold you? What made you enroll him into that program? Go well, ahead, one Mike. Things, yeah, one of the things that Terry mentioned was we were looking for a dual di- diagnostic facility and uh, that's what they told us they were. They had a doctor, they had nurses on, on staff and uh, they would also do a psychological and exams and help them both ways. They also offered to help us finance. At the time, we didn't have the money to shell out, so we were going to need financing. And uh, so everything was sounding great. I mean, Terry made the initial contact, and uh, the intake counselor was an absolutely marvelous came across marvelously. Uh, Terry talked to him, then I talked to him, Michael talked to him. Uh, when Jonathan got out of jail, uh, I think of that Tuesday, uh, we let Jonathan know we'd found a place. It was local, and uh, you were going to go, pretty much. And so Jonathan had his concerns, but he talked to uh, the gentleman, and 
they spent several hours on the phone that evening, and Johnson was convinced this this place is going to be okay. So uh, the next day, much, real, real quickly, Mike, how how much is it to to put Jonathan in Narconon? I think they quoted the price at six twenty six thousand dollars. They were going to find us a ten or eleven thousand dollar grant, and then they would help finance the rest. Okay. Okay. And um, how did you guys end up paying for Narcanon? Uh, well, Terry's brother, Scott, my, my credit wasn't what it needed to be in order to get the financial approval. So Terry's brother, Scott, agreed to co-sign with, for us. And, and I was talking to the intake council, and I said, okay, once, once we get the financial aspect approved, let's get together. We'll sign the documents. You'll tell us what you're going to provide. We'll tell you what you ex- we, we expect. And... Uh, you're going through the process like you would if you bought a car or if you got financing <laughs> for a house. Uh-huh. You know, that's just a normal contract. Well, that's uh-huh. not what happened. Um, and I'm not exactly sure of the detail here, but uh, Narconon eventually made arrangements to obtain credit cards without my knowledge, without Scott, Terry's brother's knowledge. And uh, all of a sudden... Scott starts getting these credit cards in the mail, and so we go back to Narconon and, and say, "What is this?" And mm-hmm. uh, they they said, "This is the financing. You said it was okay." And, and mm-hmm. I don't lose my temper often, but I did lose my temper with this guy, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I called him a liar, and uh, he, he was very deceitful. So uh, we ended up uh, charging fraud against him or mailing alleging that they were being fraudulent. One of the credit card companies agreed with us. The other one didn't. And uh, so we're still paying off that, that credit card. Let me ask this. Did Jonathan actually receive treatment from Narconon? No, not what he should have. He was there. Um, he he received detoxing. some food. But, uh, he, yeah, he, he got worse while he was there. Um Unfortunately, he went in there. He uh, was bringing things from his meditation shrine, some of his books. He was told he could set up and uh, meditate. Uh, he would have spiritual help there. He'd be able to go to church every Sunday. Some of the things that uh, Jonathan was really looking forward to, and, and uh, really none of it, none of it occurred. None of it happened. How is it that Jonathan ended up leaving Narconon? Um, there was a lot of turmoil within Narconon. And uh-huh. uh, I forget what happened. Oh, I think uh, he was, Jonathan was told that he was, uh, they'd done a, a urine sample and that he had oh, some drugs in him. I don't remember what, what uh-huh. it was. Um, so he ended up, he, he was angry. I mean, and when Jonathan got angry, it was not a pretty sight. Uh-huh. Uh, so he, he was screaming and some pushing and shoving started to take place. Jonathan wasn't pushed, but uh, the Narconon people were uh, roughhousing him and just telling him to settle down. Uh, they went um, into his room and just ransacked it looking for things. Uh, Jonathan called me initially and said, Dad, come get me out of here. And uh, at the time I told him no. He needed to stay there, and then he called Terry, as I recall, and uh-huh. uh, Terry talked to me and, and convinced me he needed to get out of there. So I talked to John a little bit later in the day and said, yeah, I'll come and pick you up tonight. Well, an hour after that, they called Jonathan into his, into their office and said, we're kicking you out. Um, uh-huh. need to go home for, I think, at least a week, they said. Uh, the uh, withdrawal isn't working, and uh, you can't stay here anymore. So, hmm. They said that his, his level of his level of addiction was more more than they're equipped to handle. But Mike didn't mention the fact that we insisted that they redo that drug test because the four drugs that they named off in Johnson's system it was a red flag to me as soon as I heard it because I knew that those were not his drugs of choice. And mm-hmm. um, and we insisted that they do another one, and they did, and he was clean. And they mm-hmm. and they never even apologized to him. Like Mike said, they ransacked his room, they tore his meditation shrine down through all his pictures of his family everywhere and broke glass in the frames and and you know and left him in, in a heap just totally depressed and crying his eyes out and 
and they were sabotaging him. And we later found out that that is what they did to many, many people that were there. Once they had their money, then it was over. So even after, they, even after they retested him and he came back negative, they still insisted that he could not stay with the program? Yes. Wow. Wow. I mean, so now looking back, what, what advice would you give to somebody about picking a rehab facility? What would you do differently? Well, I will tell you this. Um, I pride myself in doing my due diligence um, and, and like Mike said before, we all, every, everyone in our whole family called over there because um, this was our one shot, you know, to really mm-hmm. get some help for John. And I had been on the Internet calling and calling places all day, every day. And um, and it just sounded so wonderful. And it was and literally everything that we were told was, was false. They don't even have any medical staff at all. Their whole whole place is actually run by you know, addicts themselves who in some cases have only even been out of the programs for two weeks. And that's one of the mm. things that they do is they promise them a future there and that they'll train them to be counselors. But um, anyhow, um, I would say as much as I really believe with all my heart that I knew everything there was to know about them, um, I wish now in retrospect that we would have gone there in person and yeah. viewed the facility, and um, yeah, take the take the extra time um, to and he, he, as desperate as you may feel, you know, if we had taken, I had taken the extra day just to go and check it out, get a sense of what was going on. Um, we may have done something a little different, but it's it's well worth checking checking okay. out the facility very thoroughly. Unfortunately, in that particular case, um, I don't know that we would have really gotten any different answers from them, even if we were there in person, because they were just it. so programmed to their their sales feel, you know, that... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, well, you guys, uh, as usual, my hours go so quick, and I'm at the end of another hour, and I feel like I could talk to you guys for a little bit more here. Uh, but my guests today have been Terry and Mike Dacey, and to both of you, I wish you continued healing and peace through your efforts of sharing Jonathan's story. Uh, now, quickly, I want to say that the book is available on uh, Amazon.com, and where else, Mike and Terry? Barnes & Noble. And uh, through the publisher, uh, Balboa Press. Okay, and the title is Jonathan Behind Blue Eyes. And do you guys have a contact email that you feel comfortable giving out if somebody wants more information? Uh, did you have one, Terry? I've got... Uh, yeah, here's one. M-B-A-C-Y at M-S-N dot com. Alrighty, to both of you. Thank you guys both for hanging out with me today. I've had a pleasure speaking with you guys. Thank you so Thank much, Thank you for Lana. having us, Lana. No problem, dear. That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week. Until then, have a good one.